last number of weeks. Uh, I was on vacation uh, a couple of weeks ago, and uh, Kim Clout was here. But other than that, I, I started this, and I didn't mean to, but I uh, started this series, and I didn't know I was going to start a series, Living in the Truth in Time of a Great Deception. This is actually part five. But here's what has a strange day for me as a pastor. I've been in ministry since 1981, and this is really the first time in my life it's happened this way. I'm not kidding. Week after weekend, whether it's Wednesday or Sunday, I get up here to, to, to minister, and something comes on me, and words come. It's incredible. So I've not been able to get to my notes. I'm not kidding. I make notes, and I study and pray, but God has always has other things he wants me to share. So hopefully today he graced me first service. I was able to get to some of them, but I want his purposes, not mine. Nonetheless, we're talking about living in truth in time of great deception. And let me just talk to you a moment as a pastor. Um, we're living in a time of preparation. The life is changing. The world as we know it is changing and it's changing more rapidly than I really uh, thought it would. Uh, the Bible reveals uh, at least a third of the Bible is prophetic, talking about uh, Jesus' second return. Jesus came first for, to give us salvation. But Jesus is coming second time, and he will pronounce judgment on things that have taken over his once perfect, pristine world. Satan and those that work along with him and will kick them out. So this second time he's coming will be a little bit, quite a bit different than the first time. He's coming back and he will bring peace. Before he brings peace, however, he will wield a sword, so to speak. So it's kind of a challenging time and we are in preparation time. How many know preparation time is important regardless of, of, uh, of what vein of life you're thinking in? I mentioned first service that, you know, exercise, I, I started uh, eight years ago, I started uh, riding a professional bicycle, professionally riding a bicycle, and I bought a, a road bike that's a pretty nice one, and uh, anyway, I'll go long distances, and before I do that, I've got a checklist of things I have to do. There are garments I wear, there's a helmet I wear, there's certain I have to put gloves on my hands because I'll rub them raw because of the length of time and the distance I'm going. I have to, I have to pump the tires up to a certain PSI, 120 pounds per square inch. I have to clean the chain and oil it every single time. If I don't, I could be miles away, dozens of miles from my house, and I can't get back. I have to call somebody. So. And then besides that, I have to prepare my body. I have to eat carbohydrates. If I don't, I, will lose, I call it lose my legs. Preparation. How many hear me? Preparation is important in any vein of living, regardless of what you're doing. And, you know, it's really wise if you're a young person. I mean, set, get ready. You have to prepare for living, right? So you go to school, you get an education, you discipline yourself in some vein of living, and then you go that direction that God has ordained that you go in, and you'll be successful in life. How many know if you're going to get married? This year I will have been married how many years? Let's see. 41. Thank you. And, uh, you know, uh, Susan and I have a, a close relationship today, but, you know, I've seen couples that, you know, when you first, when you first meet somebody, you can tell if the relationship's new because there's, there's two heads in one body in the car to close. And then in the car, you know, they're separated. One's hugging one door, one's hugging the other if they've been married for a long time, unless, unless they prepare properly. Yes or no? Preparation's important, so... You know, you got to find out what that person's thinking. How many know in marriage, sex ain't everything? You figure that out real fast. No, it's the relationship. It's the person that you know. It's, the per it's who that person is. Yes or no? So don't you, just don't go find a hunk, ladies, or a pretty thing, men. You know, find out who that person is and what they believe and how they live their life. And, you know, you make preparation. 
Well, that way, it's equally true now. We're going into a vein of living, and what is in our future from a biblical perspective is uh, quite challenging. First uh, Chronicles 12.32 <clears throat> now, First Chronicles 12, uh, Saul had been king, and, and David, uh, kingship's changing, so there's a change of guard, and, uh, uh, and Israel is going from King Saul to King David, and so First Chron- uh, Chronicles 12 uh, shows all of the tribes that had warriors in it, and it's talking about them, and it's talking about you know, what they're going to be doing. And then it gets to verse 32 of First Chronicles 12. It's very interesting. It says, from the tribe of Issachar. There were 200 leaders of the tribe with their relatives. Now, leader means he's got people following him. So you think about 200 men, but they got each each of the 200 have people following them because they're leaders. That's a lot of people. And it says of them, all these men understood the signs of the times. That is, Saul's kingship's over uh, and... David's kingship is rising up, and David's going to be king over all Israel. He was, in, uh, he, he was in the city for seven years, and then he was going to move to Jerusalem to be king over everybody. And they were preparing. All these men understood the signs of the times and knew the best course for Israel to take. And you could, you know, uh, as, as an allegory, you could, uh, you could say that's the way it is today. God's raising up people who have understanding concerning the times. My personal opinion is pastors ought to be, ought to be like these men who understood the signs of the times and understood the best course that the church should take. How many hear me? So I, I believe God's speaking to pastors, local churches, and us pastors need to wake up, seek God, and prepare people for what is to come. The church in America has been, has been lulled to sleep by some really... Um, Fuzzy teaching, some easy, sweet teaching, but now, y'all, um, the life and the world is changing, and uh, it's a bit surprising to me it's happened as rapidly as it is, but the Bible does say that Jesus Christ will return, and when he comes, it's not going to be a nice time. It's, it's coming, and it's a time of judgment, so I'm talking about that on Wednesday nights. This past Wednesday, I'll talk about some practical things to prepare for Jesus coming. This coming Wednesday, I really want to, I have the notes already ready and, and I had to change it this past Wednesday, but Revelation 8, boy, that's something that you want to come in here. That's in the future. So I just want to make preparation. I want you to make preparation. And this coronavirus thing that's been going on since mid-March and here it is four months later, it's a real wake-up call. Uh, I'm not sure what the future is going to look like. I have a feeling that these things going to, they're going to try to expand this thing and keep it going for some time. So you got to choose what vein you're in, what you're doing, how you're living your life. How many hear what I just said? Preparation is important. So Jesus said this, and I mentioned this Wednesday night. Jesus' disciples had asked him what is, what is the world's going to be like when he comes back. Matthew 24, 37, when the Son of Man returns, he said one of the things he said is it will be like Noah's day. Now, let me stop right there. Noah's day. Well, Noah's day, what does he mean by that? Well, Noah's day, uh, Noah, God told Noah 120 years prior to judgment coming that a rain was, that, that a flood was coming that would destroy all life forms with the exception of, of the life forms that get on this boat that he builds called an ark. Now, some educated people think the ark didn't exist, but it did. And some people laugh at these Bible stories, and we actually take them literally. You should take the Bible literally. How many hear what I just said? 
Jesus said when the Son of Man returns, it'll be like it was in Noah's day. That it'll be a, that'll be a day prior to judgment coming. And we're, I believe, living in that day. So let me be one of those, if I could say, of Issachar's race. We are living in a strange time and the world is preparing for Jesus to return. Now let me say this, and I'll try to be fairly quick with this, but in the United States, if, if all you do is look at United States news, you don't have a clue what's happening in the rest of the world. When I travel to other countries and you look at news you know, from other countries, from their vantage point, they're looking at Europe, they're looking at Asia, they're looking at India, Africa, news from all over, a little bit from America. News in America is all about, all about America. But y'all, there's a lot happening on the other side of the world. And uh, seven hours away from here in the Middle East, in Israel, and in the Middle East and in the Horn of Africa, a lot of things are happening. And if you know anything about the sequence of events before Jesus comes back, you know that we are really ripe for some really challenging things to happen and come to pass. I mentioned this first service. I want to mention its second service. The Bible reveals that there is a man. uh, Now, I'm using my own words, but I have Bible and I have Scripture to back all this up. That there is a man that is going to make a, 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 some kind of agreement, a treaty, um, a covenant, uh, something like that with Israel. It may be really well known or it may not be well known in the news media, but that's going to happen. And he's going he's to uh, try to bring a sense of pseudo peace to or peace to between Israel and their enemies, the Palestinians, the Arabs and such. And uh, once he does that, it, it, it starts a cycle of events that we know as the tribulation. So I just want to say that, you know, even all that's going on here the past few months, and even even since we've had the rioting and the excesses in our major cities in America, and everybody's rubbing their head, what's going on? And, and now they're trying to deal with our currency, like no coins in certain places. It's crazy, right? Well, well listen to this. Not only is all that happening here, but on the other side of the globe. Um, <laughs> Man, they're working on that peace treaty really hard, and uh, the United States may have something to do with brokering that, but gonna, there's going to be a leader in, in the Middle East that rises up, and, uh, and he's going to have uh, such a punch with his words that he's going to be able to bring this to pass and foment these, these nations, and it's just about to happen. In fact, the, um, the nation, keep your eye on the nation of Turkey. Um, the nation of Turkey is ancient Anatolia in the Bible. And if you look at the landmass where the Bible reveals that the Antichrist is coming from, it's Turkey, ancient Anatolia, and right the top part of Syria. That's where the Antichrist is coming from. And here's the interesting thing, and I've got to hurry and leave this alone. But uh, Recep Erdogan is right now the uh, prime minister of um, Turkey, president, I think he's prime minister. And he's been that way for some time. And, uh, you know, uh, um, the Islamic Empire ruled the Middle East from uh, 1453 uh, AD uh, when Mehmet II, who was an Ottoman conqueror, conquered Constantinople, which was the last remaining power of the Roman Empire, and changed that city's name to Istanbul. And now just recently, uh, a Catholic church called the Hagia Sophia was now put into Islamic power and they're starting to have uh, Islamic services and it's upsetting the Catholic church, something silly. Erdogan, uh, Recep Erdogan, he's got, uh, he's got some kind of a ability to work with the nations of the Arab nations all around the Middle East and uh, he's really, now he's got his eyes set on, on, on uh, 
on Jerusalem. And I can't say a whole lot about that except to say it looks like from all that I'm seeing there, really quickly we could see some kind of a peace deal. I'm not going to put any time limit on it, and I'm not saying he's the Antichrist. It could be somebody else that rises up after him. But I'm telling you, that part of the world is ripening, and it looks like Jesus really. Are you ready for Jesus to come back? I mean, really. So God's wanting us to refocus our attention and get ready for what is to come. How many hear what I just said? Now, Jesus said this again, Matthew 24, 37, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets, parties, weddings, right up to the time Noah entered his boat. The majority of people had no clue where the world was going and what would be happening in the future. But again, there were some people that understood. Noah and his family understood. They were making preparations, and it was 120 years. It took 120 years for Noah to build the ark. And I mentioned that Wednesday night, and I'm not going to talk about it anymore. I just want to read this. People didn't realize. Jesus said, verse 39, Matthew 24, what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. This is the way it will be when the Son of Man comes. So the majority of people have no clue. And y'all, the majority of people in the U.S. of A., even in the church world, they're not preparing for Jesus to come back. They're preparing for life to go infinite just like it has been for however long. And my thesis here is it's changing rapidly. And we need to get ready for Jesus to come back. Most people won't be prepared and won't be ready. And this time will take them you know, uh, suddenly and will challenge them and scare them, but we can be ready. Jesus said this about that time. Two men will be working together in the field. One will be taken, the other left. He's speaking here to an agrarian culture, probably in the underdeveloped Middle East or Horn of Africa area. Uh, so you too much keep what? Uh, uh, two women will be grinding flour at the meal. One will be taken, the other left. This is a reference to the rapture of the church, the catching away of the saints. Uh, so too, you must keep watch for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. Understand this. He said, if a homeowner knew exactly when a burglar's coming, he would keep watch and not permit his house to be broken into. You must also be ready uh, at the, all the time for the son of man will come when least expected. Then he said, a faithful and sensible servant is one whom the master can give the responsibility of managing his other household servants and feeding them. If the master returns and finds the servants done a good job, there'll be a reward. I tell you the truth, the master will put that servant in charge of all of it that he owns. But what if the servant is evil and thinks my master won't be back for a while and he's begun beating other servants, partying, getting drunk. The master will return unannounced, unexpected. He will cut the servant to pieces, assigning a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He's just saying, get ready, prepare. And so people that know God and are smart, get ready for tough times. And I'm just encouraging you that what Jesus said is true. Tough times are coming. So I want to talk to you about some things we can do to prepare. And I've been trying to get here in my notes for weeks and weeks. And I have seven points, seven things you need to know about the Word of God. And that's all about being prepared for what's coming. How many hear what I just said? Matthew 7, Jesus said this, and I can't get away from this passion translation. It takes the nuances of understanding of the Greek language and really does bring out some very colorful things. And it said, Jesus said it again here in Matthew 7. 24, Passion Translation, he talked about the word in preparation for challenge. Notice he said, everyone who hears my teaching and applies it to his life can be compared to a wise man who built his house on an unshakable foundation. 
So again, Jesus uses the analogy of a foundation of a house as, as to that house's ability to weather huge storms that come. And he, he applies that to a person who hears the word, the Bible, and makes a choice to put it into practice. He said, verse 25, when the rain fell and the flood came with fierce winds beating upon his house, it stood firm because of its strong foundation. So here's a person whose foundation in life was the word, wind, rain, storm, beat on that person's life, but like a house on a good foundation, it didn't fall. But then he said, everyone who hears my teaching and does not apply it to his life. Now that's a lot of people today and that's a lot of people in America today. You know, we hear the word, but we don't practice the word. And that's a big challenge. How many hear me? A lot of people, you know, they come, but, you know, it doesn't necessarily, the word doesn't necessarily change the patterns and the lifestyle that a person has. And, you know, if God's word gets inside of you, you're going to see in just a minute, how many know what will change how you live your life? And that's what Jesus planned for it to do. Everyone who hears my teaching and does not apply it to his life can be compared to a foolish man who built his house on sand when it rained and rained and the flood came uh, with wind and waves beating upon his house. It collapsed and was swept away. The issue is, you know, it, it, wasn't, the, it wasn't the storm, it wasn't the wind, it wasn't the rain, and it wasn't the floods that, that caused one house to fall and the other to remain strong. It's what the person did with the foundation who built the house. You get it? So it's not the storms that come in life that defeat us. It's the foundation we have and the vantage point we have when the storm comes that determines whether or not we survive the storm, right? That's what Jesus is saying. So uh, what we need today is the Word of God. It's a firm foundation for living Life. So my encouragement, and I said this first service, and one of the kids in first service drew a picture of me, complete with my microphone and my shoes, and uh, and uh, and said what I'm about to say on the picture: cut off the media, turn it off. Too many people are listening all day to these talking heads. And they're giving God about 10, 15 minutes of time. And you wonder why fear rules and people are agitated and quite emotional and depressed and discouraged. It's according to what you're looking at. I can't encourage you enough. Keep yourself full of this book and turn, I mean, literally turn off the media. I've made a decision in my life. I don't watch the news anymore on TV. I don't need it. Now, I mentioned this, listen to this. Yesterday, I, had, I knew I had to preach today. And then I had a grandson uh, being born yesterday. So I was praying for my daughter during the day. I wanted her labor and delivery to be good, you know. So I was praying for her. And then I was studying, you know. And I've got a little place in my bedroom, a little place we sit. And, and uh, Susan was taking care of my granddaughter at my daughter's house. And I was there by myself. And I was just studying, praying. And, uh, and I did it all day long. And guess what? Last night, when I was full of the word, I had prayed up. I had studied up. I took about, I don't know, 10 minutes, maybe, I don't think it's completely 15 minutes. And I have news aggregates that I look at. I mean, pause. I mean, some of them are left, some are right, some are center, whatever. 
And I just looked, and I looked at world news, what's going on. Took me about 10 to 15 minutes. I said, okay, I get that. I know how to scan, read something. I can look at the headlines and surmise just like you. And I did that, read it. Okay, got that. Okay, got that. Look at what's happening all over the world, what the major points are. And all the uh, talking heads in the news organizations that write these articles, they're going to say about the same thing. And they got their little slants to it. So I did that. It took about 15 minutes, 10. It was between 10 and 15 minutes. That's it. I said, well, that's all I need for that. But most people do it all day. And you wonder why you feel so challenged. How many hear me? Uh, sometimes I think half our problem, most of our problems disappear if we cut it off. Anyway, last week I talked about what to do with our minds and, and God took me on a little side issue last week. I was trying to get my notes and we talked about uh, meditating on God's word and how it will keep your life. If you weren't here last week, listen to it. And, uh, and then what to do with your mind. You are in charge of your mind. Nobody can tell you what to think if you don't let them tell you what to think all day. Yes or no? You choose what you do with your mind. I learned that 40 years ago, 44 years ago when I came to the Lord. So we talked about that. And then some weeks before that, I was finally able to get to a couple of uh, uh, two of the uh, seven points I have about the Word of God. I've talked about God's Word bringing stability to life. How many know if you're unstable, I can promise you, if you're unstable, you're listening to culture and you're not listening to the Word of God. I went over really, really big. Y'all are so stoic to me today. God's Word brings stability. If you feel unstable and you don't know what you're going to do and you're concerned, you're upset, you're full of fear, uh, you're worried, um, you feel a little bit of depression or oppression, whatever you want to call it, you're listening to the wrong things. Because everything in the Bible tells us to be encouraged when Jesus comes back. And we ought to be excited. And, and that we can have joy and peace and assurance that things are going to work out for us. How many hear what I just said? God's Word brings stability. I found this out 44 years ago when I met the Lord. Uh, I, God took my unstable life and, and created stability that under, has undergirded me. All these years later, Isaiah 33, 6, wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of your times. The word will be and strength of salvation. So let me say it again. If you just feel a little upended right now, get yourself in the word. It will cure the mental instability and the emotional turmoil that these kinds of times bring. How many hear what I just said? And then the second point that I've already gone over is ask God for a hunger for the word. Now, there's a book by E.W. Kenyon. He died, I think, in 1948. This book was probably written by him in the 1920s, so probably almost 100 years ago. It's called New Creation Realities, first chapter, first sentence. And then I close the book because it said, Our attitude towards the word determines the place that God holds. In our daily life. I just had to put it down. I said, whoa. Now today, people don't value the Bible very much at all. In fact, today, here's the average American person today. They get on YouTube. They get on Instagram. They get on all these other little services that have little short snippet videos. And they're looking at videos all the time. I watch them while I'm riding my bike. They got their, they got their phones out walking on the trail I ride on. And they're just looking. I'm in restaurants. People are looking at their phones. Are they not? People are watching videos. Now, if you can't get a good video, you can't get a following. People are crazy, y'all. And then you wonder why we got the problems that we have. My friends, 
Ask God for a hunger for the word. The attitude you have towards this book determines the place that God holds. So if I'm looking at videos most of the day and give God just a few minutes in the morning of the Bible, it's not ruling my life and it's not helping me at all. And my house is built on sand. Was that clear enough? That's pretty clear. Now, so let me get to point three today. Know this, the Bible is the inspired word of God. So let me ask you a question out of that. Is the Bible to you inspired by God? No, no. Do you believe that God had the authors write the words and have them captured over the century and millennia of time for you to read? Do you believe, let me ask another question. I'm going too fast, slow down. Do you believe that the Bible is God speaking to you? Okay, next question. Are you doing what he said? If the Bible is God's word, if the Bible is God's will, am I listening? Am I obeying it? Now, I'm going to say the majority of Americans, probably not. Because the Bible has become devalued in our culture. It's been taken out of our institutions of learning. It's ridiculed, marginalized, sidelined in every level of American culture right now. And the precepts in the Bible and enough people that have listened to them and obeyed them is what has made heretofore our nation great. But we're watching the demise of our culture Because we're taking this book out. God is no longer speaking to the average American. Thank God you're a believer. If you're a believer, are you absorbing the culture? Or are you allowing God to speak to you all day throughout your day through his word? That's a big question to ask. So 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction for instruction in righteousness. And I could actually spend the whole time breaking apart this verse and talking about the reproof, the correction, the instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and, you know, that's actually a picture word of a, of, a, of a ship in the first century. And a guy's going out on a long-distance voyage. He's got a sailing ship. And he's going to be gone for months at a time. He's believing he's coming back. But he's got everything that he and his crew needs for that voyage. They've got all the clothing that they need. They've got all the fresh water that they need. And they have all of the essential food items that they need. And they also have the armament in case some marauders come and try to hurt them and their ship and its contents. So that guy has fully equipped his ship for every eventuality. He's ready for the voyage. And that's what the Bible does for life. Nonetheless, 2 Timothy 3.16, the message... Paraphrase says this, every part of scripture is God-breathed. Everybody say God-breathed. And is useful one way or another, showing us truth, exposing our rebellion, correcting our mistakes, training us to live God's way. Through the word, we're put together and shaped up for the task God has for us. So every scripture is given by inspiration of God or correctly the message paraphrase and some other translations of scripture say the word is God breathed. Everybody say inspiration. The Greek word for that, and I learned this in 1977, first Bible school I went to, theopanustos. Theo means God in the Greek. 
And panustos means wind, air, breath. So literally it's translated God breathed. The word is God breathed. What does that mean? It's given by God's breath. That is, we believe the Bible is so inspired that if, if God was standing in front of you, you could feel his hot breath on your face as he's speaking. That's how much we believe as Christians, the Bible is the inspired, God-breathed word of God. How many get that? So I get this illustration first service. My uh, grandkids love to play with balloons. So I'm really accustomed to doing this. So, so watch this. All scripture, I want to show you what the word will do in your life. Here's an illustration. So I have a balloon, uh, uh, inhale air, fun, right? I'll give this away to the first kid that comes to me after service. And then, you know, you just tie your little, uh, this one's not as, not like the first one, here we go. I'm almost, well, I'm almost there, hang on y'all. This one's a bit stubborn and I have big fingers. Here we go. So, well, I just messed this one up. Nonetheless, I'll hold it with my finger. Kids come, I'll blow another balloon up. I have to hold this with my hand. I messed it up. So, here you are. You got a balloon. What's in that balloon? Air. Air from where? So, air's in. The, guess what else is in this balloon? In this balloon is uh, Mitch Horton's DNA. Did you know that? My DNA is in that air because that air came from the, uh, the air sacs in my lungs. And it mixed up with all that's inside of me. And I blew into that balloon, me. Get it? When you read the word, now this is going to... Okay, kids, I'll do what I said. I have another balloon sitting on the chair. When you read the word... God's air, his breath is coming inside you with his DNA. And guess what's happening? He's depositing something of himself into you. And it's going into your internal being. It's going into your spirit nature. Did you know that the cells of your body, every single cell of your body has your DNA structure in it? Yes or no? You learned that in biology class, right? So every cell in your body... You could recreate you from one cell if we as humans could do that because all of your cells have the same DNA. You. My cells have Mitch Horton in them. Name your name. Your cells have you in them. When you ingest God's word, God's word has his DNA in it. And when you get it inside of you, he starts attaching his word to all of you. You get it? to the cell structures of you, so to speak. When God gets into you, it changes who you are. Is that good? It changes how you think. It changes what our motivations are. It changes the choices that we make. Now, when I came to Jesus, I was almost 18. And I'm telling you, I was extremely fleshly. In every way conceivable, I was an overly fleshly person. I was extremely stubborn. I was very mental. I had to figure everything out and have everything had to go my way. Then I had fleshly habits that I'm really ashamed of today. But you know what happened when I started re just reading the Bible? 
Just reading the word, knowing that it's inspired, God breathed. When I let the word get in through my eyes and my ears, it started changing my motivations in life. And suddenly I had to put the cigarettes down. And then I had to start stop smoking pot. And then I had to stop the lustful activities that I, I was involved in. And then God began to challenge the anger portions of my life. He really began to challenge my words. He began to challenge my relationships. Listen to this. Because the theonustos of God got into me, his DNA. I, I, start, I, I had some people, listen, I was... I was 18, but I had hung around some people since I was three. I met some of my best friends when I was three years old. True, before I even went to school. And this stuff started working in me. It's like I get around them and they're doing their stuff like they always have. We did drugs and all that together. They're talking, they're living, and they're having their ideals and ideas and ideals. And it's like, man, that just don't, there's something wrong with me. That doesn't make me happy anymore. I, I don't want to hear what they're saying. I don't like the slant on their conversation. I, I didn't tell them that. It's like, I'm feeling bad. Why am I feeling bad? Something else attached to my DNA. The word. How I many get it? I had to change my music. I had, y'all, I had albums. If I'd have kept all my albums I owned, and we had vinyl records at the time. This is mid-70s. That was the race. This is, anybody ever remember eight-track tapes? <laughs> that like took over from vinyl records, you know. But uh, I had big vinyl. And if I'd have kept them, I could make some money today selling that thing. But I gave all my vinyl records to a friend because I couldn't listen to them anymore. It's like I tried to listen to my old music. It's like something's wrong. Something's wrong with my hearing. I, I don't hear the way I used to hear. How many hear me? And then, then again, I, I couldn't go to certain places I used to go. It's like I went and played pool at a pool hall one time. And my friends, my buddies were there from my, my young childhood and such. And we all grew up together. And I was playing pool and they're doing their stuff. And, you know, they're drinking, getting high while we're playing pool. And, and the whole time I'm there, I was wanting to witness to them. It's like, oh, man, this is great me so bad. I love my friends, but I can't do this anymore. Why? DNA got in me. God's word got in me. How many hear me? There were certain kind of girls. I just couldn't hang out with them. It's like, I can't do that. I'd be talking to a girl. She's all pretty. And I'm like, mm-hmm, I like you. And then something on the inside of me, like, you leave her alone. I'm thinking, What's wrong with me? That's, that's a beautiful girl. I could, because she wasn't right inside. How many hear me? When you get God's DNA in you, y'all, it changes you. And if you're not changed... You're not letting his DNA get in. Here's the problem in the church today. The church is becoming amalgamated with the world. We're all hearing the same things and we're making choices based on what we're hearing. And we are hearing too much culture and not enough word. Yes or no? Now, let me ask you a question. You wonder why, hey, this kind of sticking together. Maybe that'll work. So uh, let me ask you a question. Why do you think these kids... I mean, they're probably 30 and under are tearing up the cities all across America. They want to change America. They want to radically change the United States of America. They're yielding to Marxist, communist, socialist ideologies. We're going to tear up the Constitution. Have you heard these things? Have you heard them? Why do you think they're yielding to that? You know what? Oh, it's little now. They don't have God's DNA in them. 
How many hear me? Because if you get God's DNA and somebody says something like that, you're like, you're a fool. You're not tearing me up, my stuff up. No, no, we're not going to do that. They don't have anything to combat it. And if you're yielding to that and you're watching me online, dude, you need to get something inside of you besides the culture because that culture is going to ruin you and it's going to ruin this nation. How many hear what I said? See, that was all free. How many get it? So when this, when, this, when this word gets inside of you, it changes who you are. Listen, 2 Peter 1.20. Everybody okay? Knowing this first, no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. Prophecy, talking about the Bible being inspired by the Holy Spirit. Prophecy never came by the will of man. Holy men of God spake as they were moved, or one translation says, swept along by the Holy Spirit. So if the Bible is the Word of God, it becomes, and, and this is what theologians have said for generations, it becomes the infallible rule of faith and practice. Question, do you see the Bible as your guide for living? So if you're not married and you've got a boyfriend, girlfriend, is the Bible a guide with how you treat your, your, your boyfriend, girlfriend? So, so your body wants to have sex with a person you're not married with. Two, do you still go ahead and have sex with him? If the Bible, if God's DNA gets in you, something says stop. Hey, I wanted to have sex with Susan before we got married. And every time I got roused up and she did too, we said, you know what we said? Uh-uh. Why? Because somebody's DNA got in me. Yes or no? I know I'm getting too plain, but let me get in your face a minute. And it's the same way with any other fleshly thing, fleshly habit, fleshly desire. If you're around a group of people and they're telling jokes and they're gossiping about people that aren't there, there's DNA. If you got this in you, something says shut up and leave. But if it's not in you, you'll say, well, you know, that's right. You know what else they said? And you'll participate. How many know God wants to bring change to us? Man, this stuff changes your life. Here's what you got to understand about the Bible. A lot of talking heads today say the Bible is of no use. It's an old antiquated book. It is, uh, you know, it's 66 books. They were written a long time ago over a period of about, according to who you're talking to, 14 to 1600 years uh, by uneducated to the most elite of culture. And, but, but none of the Bible disagrees with itself in its original languages. Now, that's a, a miracle. That's a Holy Spirit miracle. And God, through the Bible, gave us an idea of who he is. How many hear what I just said? Now, you know, here's the problem today. The problem today is we've got, we've got so much information at our fingertips, even on our phones. We don't think we need the Bible. All we got to do is Google it. Or I actually have a Google Assistant on my phone. All I have to do is touch it and press the little speaker button and ask any question about any issue worldwide or in life. And it has a basic answer. So I'm just saying knowledge is at our fingertips. So the, because of that, the people think the Bible is an antiquated book. This Bible is the, one of the oldest books in the world. And it has survived a millennia of time. That's an amazing thing. And I said this a few weeks ago. Let me say it again. You say, well, why do you think the Bible's inspired? Because God said it was. The second reason that I think that, that leads to knowing it is, is because it survived time. And if you know anything about manuscripts, I could even go on the technical level with you for a while, but I don't have a lot of time. And even if you look at the manuscripts, old books like the Bible, if you could find three or four 
uh, old manuscripts. They all had to be written by hand because there were no printing presses. You would say that's an authentic, authentic book. In fact, classic literature from yesteryear, from you know, over a thousand years ago, a couple of thousand years ago, a classic literature. If you can just find a few copies Hand copied on scroll today. That's a good book. That's an authentic book. And now we've got it printed for our, but the, listen, so, so I mean, the major books that everybody says, that's a good one. Did you know, they only have four or five manuscripts. Do you know the Bible's got over 2,000 manuscripts that have survived? That's true. The Bible. You say, well, well, that's just happenstance. No, that's God making sure humanity had his word. How many hear what I just said? Now, the average person in our culture doesn't give a hoot about the Bible, doesn't much care about it whatsoever, uh, and uh, I'm not even going to go there because I don't have time. Uh, number four, and the last thing I want to mention before I close this very quickly is God has designed this book to take his place in his absence. How many hear what I just said? He designed this book to take his place. So, so what should be happening right now he wants us to become disconnected from our feelings, disconnected from our thinking, di- uh, not thinking, disconnected from our feelings, disconnected from our cultural way of doing things, and listen intently to what he's saying. Disconnect from our dependence on feelings and circumstances and prepare for the time that is to come. Second Corinthians 4.16, this is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long. Yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs And will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. Things that are seen now will soon be gone. Things that cannot be seen will last forever. Let me give you an idea here. So think about Adam and Eve, the first man and woman. How many believe that Adam was the first man? And that Eve was the first woman. We didn't evolve from minute creatures in the sea. We came from the hand of God. That's what the Bible says. That's what gives us value. The reason our culture is having problems with human value is because nobody's talking about God creating us in his image, in his likeness. And the thing that sets us apart from the animal world and the vegetable world is that when God scooped our body from the clay and he molded our human bodies, he breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. Yes or no? And then Genesis chapter 3, the reason he did that is he would come down to his creation, Adam and Eve, and God would fellowship with him every day, say, what's going on? God had heart fellowship with Adam and Eve, his first man, his first woman, and he would talk to them about his creation, and he may say something like, uh, or Adam may come up to him, hey God, you know, I'm glad you came today. I found this nut that fell from that tree, it's on the ground. And man, that thing tasted really good. That's amazing. Or or God, I found this fruit over here from this tree. And God would say, now let me tell you about that nut. Let me tell you what it does to your body when you eat it. It gives you this, the proteins in that nut does this and this and this. And he says, well, uh, God may say to Adam, now now I want you to look at this piece of fruit. You know, you." and, and Adam said, man, that tasted really good. He said, God said, I made it that way. I made it just taste good so you'd eat it. And I've got seasonal fruits and seasonal things that you're going to be eating. But, but you know, when you eat this, let me tell you what it does to the tissues of your body. Let me tell you what it does to your respiration. Let me tell you what it does to your, to your gastrointestinal tract. Let me tell you what it does to your bones and your muscles. 
and your skin and your eyes and your ears. And God had that kind of conversation with Adam. And then suddenly, one day, God comes down to the Garden of Eden and says, Adam, 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 where are you? Let me ask you a question. Did God know where Adam and Eve was after they sinned? They were hiding. They were naked hiding behind a bush. Did God know they were naked hiding behind a bush? Why did God ask the question then? Adam, where are you? Why did he ask the question? Because heretofore, he came down to talk to them and they were transparent. How many know a good relationship? If you're going to have a good relationship with anybody, you have to be transparent. Yes or no? And people can tell if you're not real. Kids can tell if you're not real. If you're a parent and you're trying to tell your kids to do stuff and you ain't doing it, your own ugly self, they're going to know it. Is that true? If you're going to have a good marriage, you've got to be transparent. Transparency ends, relationship stifles and stymies. And that's what happened when God came down in the garden. Adam, where are you? That is, Adam, there's a veil over your heart. God knew where he was. What's happened to your transparency? What's, what's, what's happened to your honesty? What's happened to your dependence? You're afraid. You've never been afraid before. You say you're naked. You've never been naked before. You stop trusting me. Yes or no? And so Adam kind of separated from God on the inside. And here's what the Bible does. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, the Bible says we're all born in sin without relationship with God, without fellowship with God. God devised, and so Adam and Eve, think about it this way. Their spirit nature deep inside, their intuition, their inner knowing, that's how they lived life. That's how Adam gave a name to all of creation. He gave botanical names to the, to the, to the uh, uh, fruits and the vegetables and all of the greenery and the vegetation. He also gave names to the animals. How did he do that? Intuitively. He had a relationship, fellowship with God. That all broke and all, that all ended when Adam and Eve sinned. And Adam had to learn to live by his wits. He lived by what his eye could see and his ear could hear. And he was cut off from fellowship with God. So the intuitive part kind of stopped and it was stymied. Now, here's how much God loves us. You say, why is the Bible important for me today? God uses the Bible so that we can see it, we can hear it, and we can get God's DNA from it, and it comes inside of us. Jesus said, man will not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. John 6, 63, Jesus said, the words that I speak to you are spirit and life. When you start reading the Bible from the outside in, God starts communicating with you. And it starts a relationship with him when you get born again. And then when you get born again and you start reading the word, his DNA structure starts attaching to you. And he says, I want you to lope this off. I want you to stop thinking that way, talking that way, behaving that way, hanging out with that person, doing this, acting that way. I want you to make some changes because his DNA starts overwhelming you. Y'all, I've been with Jesus, listen, this is my 44th year, and there's still areas of life that he is changing in me. And even, you know, the last four months, I promise you, there's areas of separation in my personal life that has come because I know God's getting us ready for some things in the future. And he's wanting to use us in a demonstrably different way in the body of Christ than we've ever been used before. And he's wanting us to lope off the things that hinder and distract. How many hear what I just said? Everybody awake? 
So the Bible's the word, y'all. It's God breathed. And God wants you to take it and believe it and act on it and get away from dependency on all this information that we have. We may, we may be the information age, but it's ruining us as a culture because we've left God behind. And if you want to be successful into what we're navigating into, it's time to build our house not on the sand of our opinions or our culture's opinion, but to build our house on the rock, the bedrock of what God says. And if we do that, we're going to make it just fine.